Welcome to Sardisms, where we take great ideas and bring them together to have great conversations. On this episode, we speak with Alistair Cannon, who is a junior doctor for the NHS. Alistair specializes in psychiatry, but is currently researching various health tech movements and sees the importance of how great tech can and should aid doctors, not hinder them. Welcome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to chatting to you uh, and finding out about you and where you came from and what you're doing and, 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 and what you're doing. You know, I've worked with Oxleys for, well, for about 14 years. I mean, the company's 10 years old, but about 14 years. And obviously we don't really get involved in the actual clinical work mm. <laughs> and we don't really build the clinical systems. So I'm also just intrigued like the life of a psychiatrist and what it's like and what you do and what sort of, um, you know, obviously not going into detail of particular cases, but what sort of things you deal with? What's the, what's it look, what's it look like? And, and things like that, don't we? We can get into that. That was almost mm. an opening question, wasn't it? It was. That's quite a good opening question. Well. What does a psychiatrist do? Like, how do you actually treat people? And what sort of things come to you? Like, oh, there's obviously a lot of kind of um, mental health problems in yeah. society, but I get the impression that the likes of Slam and Oxley's, who we deal with, deal with pretty acute cases. I, I think that's true of any like secondary mental health care trust, of which Sam and Oxley is a kind of the examples that we know in that just the, the things we see in that setting are things that have gone beyond what people just manage by themselves or manage by talking to their friends, having their support network and beyond usually what a GP can easily sort out. So it's sort of the, the very much more severe end of things. And I guess there's a definite leaning towards what, what we describe as mental illness which I see as quite distinct from mental health problems or like things that aren't perfect in the way that people are feeling about life. Right. Because what we can actually treat quite effectively in a lot of cases is mental illness, which is something that falls quite well in as a branch of medicine. Whereas I feel like making the world a better place and just making people feel happier generally isn't part of what a doctor would be doing. Well, at least not in their role as a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we like to think you bring joy and happiness to the world more generally. Oh, yeah, I hope so. And and a part of that, and hopefully we're all part of that. No, I I certainly feel I've been talking to friends quite a lot recently about just sort of loneliness, mm. and um, you know the pandemic I think has highlighted that for a lot of people. I, I I feel like there's a bit of a loneliness epidemic that just runs through society that we weren't we weren't really sort of designed to be in these little boxes on our own and go home every night to, you know, well, in my case, the family, but I think a lot of people don't have that or housemates or, you know, and we probably for thousands of years used to all sit around a campfire together and, and have that support network there. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like it's missing. And mm -hmm. I went to at Christmas, I went to, uh, my son was playing in a band and his music, his music teacher is part of like an evangelical church. And um, that's not really my thing. But when we went to that church, it was like a real community there. And I was a bit like, oh, I, I wish I believed in this stuff because <laughs> you people, mm. you're, you're such a lovely bunch of people. And there yeah. was such warmth and friendliness. And I was like, oh, that's, I'm in a village. I'm in a tribe. It's really nice. Yeah. And then there's the pub. 
where you can go and you have some of that. And, and when I was younger, like pubs were real kind of community places and people had like a sense of place. And then, but to go to the pub, you have to be in that, no, you don't have to be in that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It kind of comes with the terrain mm. and you just think, I wish there was a church where you didn't have to believe in certain things. And I wish there was a pub that you could go to where you didn't have to be an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I'm pining for that like um, tribal thing. And I I feel like I'm particularly fortunate person who, who has a lot of that. We, you know, we live in a very kind of close um, community. We have lots of parties and it's friendly and it's a nice place to be. And I feel supported by my friends and family. But when I'm out walking the dog, I just walk past all these houses and it's just people sat in their homes on their own. Mm. And I guess that's the other, the thing that's not mental illness, right? It's not a manifestation of, uh, we're not talking about treating that, although that is clearly a big problem for society, or at least it is in my eyes. I'm partly glad to hear it's not just a city thing, because it's definitely... Because I sort of live in London, I guess, and there's a definite sense of like there are a few people around who I recognise, a very small number who I know and would talk to, but like the thousands of people who live nearby, I just have no knowledge of who they are, what they're doing. I would never interact with them even if I bumped into them, mm. which really doesn't help. But I'm glad that it's not just a phenomenon that's, that affects me where I am, and that it's a bit more widespread. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably everywhere. I think it's probably less so in you know 20,000 population seaside towns yeah <laughs> yeah but um but which is why one of the reasons we moved here but i i, I live, used to live i think not far from you because you lived in mm. crystal palace and actually crystal palace had that because it's built on this little triangle of roads mm. and so there was a sense of community it was almost like a fireplace it was like a th- it was like the fire pit that everyone could congregate around because you knew um where the center was Whereas actually places like Sydenham, which is just, you know, just down the road, it's a through, through road and you've got no sense of belonging or identity because it just sort of merges into the next next section of London. Where we are, it's all quite jumbled. So we're quite close to like the, the high street in Peckham. We're also quite close to the sort of very different kind of high street where East Dulwich is. Yeah, West Peckham. <laughs> very trendy West Peckham, which is where we are and then really close to like the sort of town centre I guess of Camberwell and it, it, all, it all just feels like very different things just smushed together mm. Mm. and I've not quite figured out whether it works in any meaningful <laughs> way but it, yeah it's interesting to wander around mm. be like all these very different setups I, I, London's like um, like a group of villages as far as I'm concerned but yeah then they then they mash into each other well I, I love london i do miss it in some ways but it was yeah you do you do have a slightly stronger sense of community i think in places like whitstable yeah I, I was saying all that because i was trying to make that distinction between sort of mental mm-hmm. illness as as a thing that you would treat in, in a place like slam or oxley's and yeah. sort of a general anxiety and loneliness i think unfortunately is pervasive and Ubiquitous. Yeah. I'm all for people doing stuff to tackle it. I think that's really important. But I, I find it difficult. I mean, it's difficult to argue at times that psychiatry is part of medicine. And if you then go off and say, oh, well, actually, 
part of our remit is to cure all the loneliness in the world and make people feel happy and get rid of that sense of despair and dissatisfaction that's rife, then it very much sets us apart from normal doctors. Mm. I don't know. I don't know whether there's an element of pride in it that as a profession, we don't want to distance ourselves from the rest of medicine, but it does feel like it's definitely a bit of overreach to be like, oh yeah, well, it's, it's our role and, and we have the skills and the capabilities to do that rather than mammoth But also we don't want to like perpetuate this idea that we're not real doctors. We're not doing anything meaningful or useful or anything that requires any, any of the same skills that colleagues in other specialties have. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like a bit of a slippery slope. But that makes sense if you do make that distinction, as you say, between each sort of treating mental illness, uh, an actual condition of like uh, like a chemical imbalance in the brain, or is that where it sits? Yeah, I, I think I draw the distinction more on what it looks like and the effect that it has on your life, rather than necessarily trying to put it down to the scientific basis of why it's happening. Partly because we don't really no, um, mm. which is actually, I think, one of my favorite things about psychiatry is that, like, we know how a chest infection works and we know what the healing process is if you fix a bone and you just put it back together and let it heal. But we don't really, to the same extent, know what the mental illnesses are that we're treating. Mm. Like, on the, on the molecular level, we don't have that good an idea of what's going on, which makes it, makes it more interesting. And it means there's more stuff to find out, which I find quite appealing. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Does it feel more like an art than a science? As as you progress through your psychiatry career, you you sort of get a better understanding of what actually does work and um, get feeling it rather than textbook diagnosis and treatment. There's, there's definitely more a sense of like it's a more holistic approach in that you sort of have to, in order to be effective, take account of what's going on in terms of physical things, things that might be contributing to problems, but also what's the social setting of this person? What are their relationships like with other people? What's going on in their life? What's gone on in their life sort of throughout it that would be contributing to problems? And put all of that together, thinking about where they are in society generally and how all that plays together. Then that's kind of what makes it feel more like an art mm. than sort of saying, oh, well, we need to do a swab of that and see what bugs grow. And then we know which chemicals will kill those bugs. Not to like belittle what other types of doctors do, but I feel like there is quite a difference in the approach. So is that what attracted you to it? Or did you did you not realise that until you got into it? <laughs> I think that was that was part of it. In that your approach is very much like, okay, here's a person and they there's something that's not right in their life. And it's manifesting as them running into problems, which sometimes people notice and sometimes People don't notice that they're running into those problems, but everyone around them does. And you sort of approach it thinking, okay, it could be one of a huge number of things. Let's do a bit of exploring, get to know this person, get to know what's going on with them and see what things we can do from a really pragmatic sense to be helpful, whether that's the kind of things that we would think of as medical treatment or whether it's just giving some support in a way that other people perhaps can't provide it. And just trying to be helpful in quite a, sometimes quite a creative way. I think that's what makes it more fun. Right. 
I really wanted to know, Alistair, how you got into me- like medicine and and also the like the tech side of it as well. So I guess the medicine backstory is a bit longer. <laughs> I guess because it has to be. Yeah, I was always very sciencey. Started A level thinking, oh yeah, I really like I really like physics. Maybe I'll go go off and study physics and do some really clever science and discover how the world works. <laughs> and then I did physics A level, and I was like, some of this is quite fun, and interesting, and it's nice to build up a picture of how how the world works mm. but a lot of it is just really weird it doesn't make any sense <laughs> i don't really like it um and i was like actually my favorite science is biology it turns out and then all my friends were like oh yeah yeah maybe i'm, maybe I'm just gonna do medicine and i was like yeah actually that sounds quite cool i sort of thought about it a bit partly thinking about it like in the context of what i understood which was having done a week's work experience in a GP surgery, which I'm not sure really explained anything about how anything works. Yeah. But it was nice. <laughs> um, and from having watched Casualty from quite an early age <laughs> and sort of thinking, yeah, this could be this could be quite interesting. So like went through that sort of process of looking at medical schools, figuring out whether that's actually a sensible option, and then applying and then going to uni. Having a very diverse experience, some of which involved actually learning some science stuff, some of which was relevant to medicine, um, but also doing lots of singing, doing lots of technical theatre stuff. Cool. Um, ah. I know. Really fun. Lesbian. We like lesbians. <laughs> but Mariah and I were in a play together. We are in, um, I, I, it's too long a title. Putnam the 25th spelling. annual <gasps> Putnam County Spelling Bee. I, mean, yeah. I absolutely love it. Yeah, that's so good. You know I, it. Yeah, you know it for a start. It's amazing. One of the songs is on my like my running playlist. Oh, oh that's amazing. Keep me going. <laughs> yeah, I did. The, I can't remember the name. My that character, really Ma- cool. the magic foot guy. Uh, I know Josh Gad played. Oh, there you go. Where were you at then, Alistair? Where- so this this all happened when I was in Cambridge, right? And I was sort of doing some like doing some singing with college chapel choirs um, and then was like oh yeah this this idea of like doing musical direction for shows sounds quite fun mm-hmm. quite like musicals quite like theater generally i guess um so i was the musical director for a play with songs which was an odd setup to begin with and then we sort of got to the point where we were doing the, the tech rehearsal and it was all a bit of an absolute mess. And there was just this absolute chaos. And it was the first show I'd really done at the proper, it's a sort of semi-professional theatre, which is actually a department of the university. Wow. Um, and essentially there's like a team of, I guess about five now, managers who are employed. And then about... <laughs> 200 students who spend more than half their time doing theatre stuff. Um, and I just walked into this world and there was this absolute chaos of like, the tech isn't even happening. We're not going to finish the tech rehearsal. We're not going to be ready for the dress. Um, and so I kind of got involved and I was like, this is really fun. I like this. There's all this like cool backstagey mm-hmm. stuff. There's all this lighting stuff. Ooh, there's a design element to lighting. Um, and got more involved in that than I should have done given my remit for that show. 
and then was like, oh, this is really fun. Okay, when's, when's the next thing that I can get involved with? Um, and very much felt mainly into lighting design because I quite liked how it was like a bit technical, mm-hmm. but also there's a definite like, artistic element to it. Definitely, yeah. Sounds like psychiatry. It does, it, exactly. It does. <laughs> exactly. It also sounds a little bit health tech, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, this is really cool. You can like be really artsy about it, but also like think about those logistical constraints of where you can put stuff and how much power you can use and what the fixtures can do and then make it look pretty, but also pretty in a sense that like portrays a picture that fits with the general aesthetic of the show. I found that really fun. Hmm. And then ended up doing way more of that than I did of like learning biochemistry or anatomy um with which yeah i don't really have any regrets to be honest good that's what it's about (laughs) absolutely it made it a bit more stressful but it was worth it i need to pitch given where you live um south london theater in west norwood have you ever been there seen it i've heard you you mention it that's where i met my wife Yeah. There you go. Proposed on stage and everything. Yeah. But it's it's a really good it's where our office manager, Naomi, uh, where we know her from. In fact, we've had a lot of people from Tom who's on our customer support. He's uh the boyfriend of someone we know from South London Theatre. We do have an open recruitment policy, honestly. <laughs> we, just, we just attract really good candidates who happen to be friends and family. <laughs> we, we, it's true. Yeah. Tom went for a really long process and we were like Oh, this is really annoying because it's going to look like we just picked him because we know him. <laughs> <laughs> he's really good. Uh, yeah, South London Theatre. Okay, go go join there. Is that where you did spelling bee? No, we did that Yeah. So, what happened um, after uni for you? So, I moved halfway through my degree and I started living in London over in West London, because I was at Imperial, um, which was a very different experience. Um, I think the university feels very different. And also just living here was a bit of a shock. Mm. And then did a little bit more music stuff, a bit less theatre stuff, and definitely a lot more actual studying and learning some medicine, which I think was a good move. Yeah. And then got to the end of med school and I was like, where, where do I want to go? I don't know where I want to go. Um, I decided I wanted to get out of London for a bit, which is quite easy because the way the like job allocations work mm. is a, a big centralised process and the biggest determinant of where you are in the list of the first to pick jobs is the situational judgment test. Okay. Which is lots of really bizarre questions like you walk into the mess and one of the registrars is watching some porn on their laptop, <laughs> rank these five responses in order from most appropriate to least appropriate. <laughs> oh my God. Um, such a weird question. It's such a weird question. <laughs> it's, it's perhaps not the most representative example, but it, it gives a sense of like... It was one. <laughs> what a ridiculous, <laughs> what a ridiculous thing it is. So everyone does that. Mm. And then there are a few other things that contribute to your score, like where you are within your medical school, which is a bit peculiar because it's not 
where you are nationally, it's where you are within your medical school. And I, d- I don't want to sound disparaging of other medical schools, but they're not all the same. Right. The cohorts are not all the same. Um, and also their approach to exams is very different. Hmm. So I've never really thought that was like a valid comparator between institutions. Um, but most of it rests on this ridiculous test and puts you in sort of a, an order in which you pick the jobs that you want. Um, not that that's hugely relevant because the year I ranked Jersey as one of like my top few choices, it was really undersubscribed, not hugely popular. Mm. Um, so I went off to Jersey. Yeah, there you go. And had a great time. So that's where I did my so foundation years one and two, which is one and two, and liked it so much that I stayed for an extra year. Oh, wow. Hanging around, working in medicine, medicine. Which was nice. Do they have the same system in Jersey? Is it is it part of it's, the National Health Service or is it? It's very similar. So it's not it's not part of the UK, and none of the laws in England and Wales are in Jersey. Someone has to like look mm. at them, essentially copy and paste the whole thing. I think. Yeah, um, that's the impression. <laughs> is they basically bootstrap there. Mm their legal system based yeah. on the UK but it is separate copy the whole thing so while I was there we got some mental capacity law uh, which was a good thing and everyone was very excited because before that it was very much like there was no legal framework for this business of this person is clearly making a terrible decision they don't have the wherewithal to make this decision because of this reason this decision is better this is what we're going to do for them Mm. And it's been in the UK for a long time. And it's got quite a robust structure and it all makes sense. But before, like, when I first arrived in Jersey, people were making those decisions and sort of saying, well, it's clearly in your best interests. And you're clearly not able to make the decision for yourself. So I'm just going to make it. Which was legally a bit dicey. I don't really know how it all worked. But now there's a legal framework for it, which is like, and the mental health law is essentially the same, but all the numbers are different and all the wording is a bit different. Right. And it's all very confusing. The hospital system looks exactly the same as the NHS. Um, their primary care, you basically have to pay to see your GP, which feels like a really alien concept. Yeah. Mm. And it does... Actually, I'm not sure. I was about to say that it means that you see a lot more stuff in the emergency department that should be in GP. Right. And I'm not sure that it's actually any worse than it is here. We used to say it a lot. We'd think, oh, well, if you didn't have to pay to see your GP, all these people would go to their GP with this problem and we wouldn't need to try and deal with it in a, like, a way that we're not set up to in the emergency department. But actually, I don't think it is any worse in Jersey than it is here. Because mm. people just go to any because it's there it's open they'll have to wait for a very long time but someone will see them and that was my like <laughs> from from within the system that was my biggest criticism of the idea of paying to see your GP and there are obviously other problems like people not getting the care that they need or having to like sacrifice lots of stuff in order to be able to pay for it yeah but my my main criticism from someone within the system actually I'm not sure holds any water now I think about it. 
Mm. In hindsight, how did you get involved in in health tech? Then how did health tech appear on the radar? And you you've been involved a little bit with the public money, public code. You've been a supporter of it, which we love. And we met NHS Hack Day, and I don't think it was till the journey home that I realised that we actually provide your rostering system at South London. Or I didn't I didn't realise you were a a doctor at South London Maudsley. Yeah, very much. Again, fell into health tech by accident. So in my in my third year in Jersey, um, the way they like convinced us to stay was like they're like, oh, well, we'll, we'll pay for you to do one of these postgraduate degree thingies. And I was like, yeah, cool. I really want to do some medical education and actually sort of think about it properly, do a mm. proper thing in it. So I did a postgraduate certificate in that in time that I didn't really have. So I just built up this habit habit of squeezing this thing into time that didn't really exist in my week. And then it got to like the May of that year and that finished. And I was like, oh, but what am I now going to squeeze into time that I don't have? <laughs> and I, I've been thinking more and more about the systems that we were using in the hospital. Well, in the emergency department, we had electronic notes and that same system is what we use to like order blood tests and look at all the results and get into the radiology stuff. And I was like, this is this is interesting. There are things to think about. It's like, one, how does it how does it work? From a generally like curious, how does the world work perspective? But also like the things that go wrong when we're using this. There must be a way that we can design things better so that it actually works. So then when I ran out of things to fill time that I didn't have, I remembered doing like little courses on Code Academy. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I should like do some computery stuff. Let's learn about computers. Um, and found, rediscovered Code Academy, started using free code camp, like learning computery things. And it was all really fun. But th- those two things didn't really link up mm. yet. And then I guess it was from like following interesting people on Twitter. And there was like these, these people who work at that interface between these things, these systems, how do they work on a technical level and what is good for practice? How does it work? How can we make it better? And there were people sort of smushing those two ideas together. And then they was like, oh, there's this, this hack day. And that year it was in Manchester. And I was like, oh, that'd be really cool. I should, I should just like fly over and go and do that. But the days didn't work out. And I was like, okay, that's something I need to sort out as soon as I can. So then moved to London in and to 19 and then there was the first hack day while i was there mm. i was like yes definitely just gonna go and and that was really fun people including kevin <laughs> who's there sort of thank you looked a bit disheveled with the hoodie on yep. thanks sort of, <laughs> but it was it was i think it, it was more the fact that it was like the hoodie of the company that you'd started and there was a sort of vibe of like, oh, you look, I've started, I've started this company. You made it sound like it was just you with your like little company. And I was like, that's, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wasn't just me. Uh, there, there was well, I, I know that now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At the time though. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. As an example of lots of really lovely people doing really interesting things. Yeah. Lo- loads of really fun people are happening. So I'm, um, yeah, gutted that there hasn't been another one. Mm. 
that's happened since. There will be. Yeah, we keep talking about it. There'll be more. Yeah. I think we'd quite like to run one round here. Well, that would be really cool. Yeah. Because it, it was just such a fun environment of like inherently very nerdy people just all going to the same place and be like, these are things that I want to think about. Can we try and fix it? Can we do some like particularly nerdy stuff to actually try and make some fixes to these problems? And it was just so cool. And I was like, yes, this is amazing. There are like at least 100 people here. And this is just the people who could make it to this place on this weekend. Yeah. Who yeah, that's true. Have like the mindset and the skills to take these things and try and build solutions to them. I was like, yes, this is amazing. This is so exciting. It is hyper nerdy to turn up to something at the weekend <laughs> to hack technology together for the NHS. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> It is unpaid yeah, extremely nerdy but then it does select for a particular type of person and then mm. it's often a really good fun place to be and it's really you know there are they are quirky characters or yeah. something like that it's good i was I'm kind of worried that it would be like not quite a boring conference but that might be its predominant vibe and then i arrived in cardiff on the friday and they're like oh we've all got out for drinks in this like theatre bar yeah um, and we're there and met loads of really fun people and then we turned up at this this university building and there were just loads of really nice people and it, it had a really fun vibe yeah it's good we need to do it again let's do yes. it again let's do it see the thing we're trying to do I think that's one of the things that inspired the kind of public money public code thing was I, I really love that energy of that place, but then it, it's if people go there and then they do it a little bit and then it gets parked. And I'm like, this needs mm. to be something that collaborative mentality where we're all trying to sort out these problems needs to maintain itself over a longer period of time. And people need to be paid to do it. So it isn't just a, uh, a hobby thing to keep that ethos of, well, let's, let's collaborate on things. Let's use that energy of people who really mm. want to try and fix these problems but make sure they're not worrying about paying their mortgage mm. at, the, yeah. at the same time and they've got the space and energy to think about it. So I, hopefully that resonated with you and a bunch of other people mm. and we're trying to move that along. Yeah, but I think that it could, it wouldn't work as well without funding for it. But I think the, like, the biggest barrier is that everyone is there together for that weekend and that's when stuff happens. And thereafter, a lot of those people have never seen each other since hardly spoken since mm. so like projects that would really benefit from people picking them up and running with them keeping going developing them into more stuff there just isn't the setting for that to happen mm. and i guess if, if there were money to help it that would be a really effective way to do it you probably could do it without the money but i don't know how you would then set up this this setting where people are interested and in, it's still doing it as a hobby would be able to carry on with them. That was a very inconclusive response. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a tough, tough problem to solve. Exactly. Oh, I ponder that regularly. <laughs> How do we fix this thing? Because it does need uh, fixing. It's certainly a bit of a mess, isn't it, health tech? It is. It, it feels like a very scary world at times to walk into, just because it's so vague. And like actually knowing what what there is in that sphere and how to how to interact with it in a useful way mm. is really tricky. And it at times feels like there's lots of little factions who aren't at war, 
but very much disagree with a lot of the principles that other factions abide by, which makes it really tricky. Right? Mm. What 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 is what is good? What is worth engaging with and putting effort into? And what's the right way to do things? And maybe there isn't actually an answer to that. And we just have to get on and do some stuff, find out yeah. some stuff, take action, push in the right direction, hope. See what happens. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I'm trying to do. I think that's what we're trying to do. Public money, public code is try and be a bit more, a bit more inclined to be inclusive. In, mm. I don't mean that in a like a woolly way, but just um, if you're pushing roughly in the same direction as us, we're all for it. You know, yeah. otherwise you do get these factions yeah. forming, like. You know, if you roughly align with the direction, in fact, if you're as long as, long as you're even pointing like within 180 degrees of the same direction, if you're 170 degrees, that's fine. 160, that's all, that's all fine. But you should be within that scope of going in that direction. Then we're on to a winner. Yeah, loosely defining who's on the same team. Mm. I guess it's good. You got a bigger team. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess with with the idea of this public code thing, you need to make it quite the edges reasonably defined so that people don't view it and think, oh well, I'm very much outside of that. I'm not part of it. Mm. I'm not gonna engage with it or contribute. But if you're like, well actually, you know, the way you're thinking about things isn't that different from us. Why don't you just come and see what we're up to, see whether we can find some commonalities in what we're trying to do probably quite an effective way of just bringing more people in hmm. yeah it, it times feels a bit ideological and that like there's this this clear notion of like yeah people have essentially paid for this very indirectly through money that they've paid into the public system so the outputs should therefore be publicly accessible which i think is a really good starting point but there's at times a sense that, yeah, that everyone has to stick by that mantra. And maybe that's good for cohesion. But I wonder whether it's a barrier to being really inclusive with lots of other people mm. and getting people on side. Yep. It's a constant debate, the kind of like for profit. I mean, it, we're not a bunch of communists. I think it is. Um, it, on the public money, public code admin group the other day, there was some discussion about getting money in and it was like, they only really support for-profit organizations. And I was like, well, it's that Groucho Marx thing, you know, if you don't like my principles, well, don't worry, I've got other ones. <laughs> I think, you know, it's not, it's not hard and fast, like you, this is the only way to do it. Mm. For me, it, it's that, thing that i enjoy in the rest of tech which is it's a very collaborative place generally yeah. like tech technology the things we build uh the code academy stuff that, that you do like it, it's very open right it's easy to get in they yeah they've mm. got like a paid section and you can pay for extra but yeah um but a lot of the tools you're learning from are tools that have been mm. developed by other organizations and stuff like that. And there's definitely a big commercial element to that as well. I mean, uh, React Framework, the JavaScript React Framework has come out of Facebook. 
Um, we use the Twitter bootstrap stuff. Um, Ruby, Ruby on Rails that we use for our applications is built by Basecamp. They use it for their own purposes, you know, but there's still that collaborative sense. I still feel like you feel like you're building things together. And, and then when you come into health tech, it's like silos of companies building this thing here. Mm. And actually they don't want it. They don't really want it to talk to, to another system because because that will cut into them commercially. And the whole ecosystem doesn't really support that collaborative environment that you get in the rest of tech. And so just trying to shake that up a bit so that it so that you get more of that collaborative push, even even with a commercial angle on it. You know, mm. so it's good for SARD, I yeah. think. I guess there's like real merit in the idea of we've got a thing, we've got a problem, we want to fix it, we're gonna build this thing. And we've built it for us. So we're gonna we're gonna squeeze all the juice out of it. And it's ideal for us. But then we've got this thing that actually works really well and would be pretty useful in similar situations. And it won't be perfect for other situations because we can build it for them. But there's no point in keeping it a secret. Because mm-hmm. if one organization has got what they need from it, it doesn't it doesn't take away from that to then share it. So look at this thing we built. It's probably not perfect for you, but you can you can make it. So go off and with it, do what you like. Mm. Yeah, I can't really think of an argument against that. To be honest, <laughs> no. Yeah, it's strange to me that it doesn't work in any country. Thus, mm. if like sometimes I follow uh, like US health tech Twitter, and they are like berating themselves, and it's all about kind of like well of course you know we're insurance company led and we've got this sort of um you know very privatized even those big medicare and medicaid budgets and things like that but i feel like they there's a lot of self-flagellation going on and yet you come to the uk which is completely opposite and has this nhs in the center um and it has exactly the same issues I don't know whether it's because yeah. we're downstream of the states, and if the states had a different system, we they would be that collaborative system in place, and and the rest of the world would benefit mm. from it as it does with a lot of other technology that comes out there. Just picking up the states for you. <laughs> <laughs> Should be standing up, putting a hand on the heart in a minute. Um, but yeah, I wonder if we're downstream of that tech. But you, you don't seem to get it anywhere. You don't. You know, Germany, France, Netherlands, none of them mm. seem to have like a really good platform or open stack system. Yeah. It feels like it's because we, we've got this sort of centralized funding system, but we then use that money to pay private companies who come along and are like, oh, there's this enormous pot of money that we want to get in on. Let's build some stuff and sell it. And so you can have access to this thing that we built if you give us some money. Mm. And I don't know how to change it so that that's not what we do. Because what we want is to have very different organizations who are intent on building things and doing that in a way that generates money for them. But then having built this thing can then be like, well, this, this is now a thing. We've got the money that we needed to make it happen. We've kept our office running. We've paid all our staff. We've now built this thing. Who wants the thing? Mm. Mm. Well, hello. I know an organisation. Like <laughs> Do you? 
Yeah. <laughs> that exact description. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. I, that's what drives us. That's the way we're set up. And I think we're lucky. We're fortunate because we came out of the NHS and the way that we're funded in our finances. Um, we don't have like we don't have shareholders to repay. That makes a big difference. Mm. I'm not sure the way that I run the company is good for Saad commercially. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't sack me, Moxley's board. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure it is good for it commercially. But I mm. think it's the right thing to do. And but with I'm not answerable to anyone um, beyond that. I mm. can make that. I can make that pitch to the current shareholders, and they go, "Yeah, I agree." Let's do it the let's do it the weird way that's not good for business. <laughs> it is it's a quirky way of doing it. I don't realize what, what I was saying a minute ago made it very much sound like I, I was some sort of plant or maybe a, a shareholder. <laughs> to, in a sidelong way, espouse the virtues of the way that Saad runs. No, it was beautifully. I felt like it, maybe oh, subconsciously, but we have an ally. It's yeah, yeah, thing. we do. <laughs> Did you want to talk about any of the challenges that you faced as a junior doctor trying to do meaningful health tech, as you so eloquently put it? It is, it is a bit tricky at times. And I wonder whether it comes from that, that label of junior doctor or the trainee body, both of which I don't know whether it is actually pervasive it feels quite infantilizing it's a bad phrase right mm. junior doctor i mean yeah uh, what what are you you ct ST? yeah so i'm ct3 ct2 right. and a half i'm in like this weird position of being off the conveyor belt so i'm mm. out of program yeah and um, which is for research so it's an Uber, and there's lots of there's terminology for it there's no real sense of what it is or how it works and mm. whether the courses that i still need to do before the end of core whether I have access to study budget for them. Mm. Nobody knows. People just make up the answers. So that label of junior doctor, I mean, you're five years in. In no other profession would you call someone mm. junior Absolutely when they've not. got on their, their yeah. five years of experience. Oh, yeah, it's junior. Yeah, it's just done a medical degree and then done <laughs> five years experience and it's still junior. You know, yeah. and you'll do three more years and you'll still be called junior. Yeah. One of the absolutely baffling things when the junior doctor contract was a thing which was just before i graduated mm. but the idea of like people who've done all the foundation training all of the specialty training they're now an sp7 which means they are at a minimum in their ninth year of practicing as a doctor they've probably taken a lot longer if people have taken time out to do other interesting things so my, my plan all along was psychiatry in its total is six years post foundation to spend 12 years doing that and just take every other year out to do something interesting yeah. and exciting just to make it more fun and could be a consultant isn't that great mm. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good position to be in but it's not like phenomenally better than being in training and doing fun things does does your role change when you go from junior to consultant does it your actual job change fundamentally yeah so your your position within the team changes quite a lot and the kind of things that fit into your job role end up being quite different and you're then responsible for a lot more stuff you're ultimately responsible for the patient care which is quite a big change mm. but you're also then managing teams and you are a line manager for various other people end up having lots more stuff 
in your role that isn't clinical medicine, um, which lots of people see as a bad thing. And there are arguments for why it is, from an organizational point of view, a bad thing. Um, I don't think it's something that I'll particularly mind because I quite like having just a big mix of stuff mm. that is what I do. I've still not figured out what, what to do about the terminology because I think it places you in a position of feeling inferior, mm. um, which is quite odd because the problem with junior doctor is it that it distances you from like having any proper responsibility. Um, and I think the word trainee, which is what we often use, is perhaps even worse because mm. you wouldn't really want to have your care, most of your care delivered by a trainee doctor. Right. In the same way that if you had a, a trainee hairdresser, you'd be a little bit wary of mm. the outcome because mm. it's someone who has just started and hasn't qualified as a hairdresser yet, which doesn't apply when the idea of a doctor in training because you're a, you're a, a trainee consultant, but you're not a trainee doctor. But you are a doctor. I feel like they should just call you doctors. Like from from the general public's perspective, yeah. just call yeah. you doctors. And then when you part, when you finish and you become a consultant, then you're like senior doctor. And yeah, because that's well, like that's that. the way I I explain it to everybody who doesn't work, work in this world. I'm like, yeah, they're junior doctors, but they they're, they're just normal doctors. Yeah, <laughs> they are doctors at that point. They just call them juniors because they're still in training. But yeah. we're all in training, right? Mm. Yeah, that's what that's what I go for. In that I say I'm one of the doctors, and for a while I described myself as a, a doctor in psychiatry, and um, partly because so I read an argument that was actually quite convincing. Of like you wouldn't call yourself a surgeon until the point that you were operating independently, which is sort of at a similar kind of time to when you would have passed your membership exams for that that particular medical law college. Yeah. So when I, earlier in training, I would sort of say. Yeah, I wasn't entirely convinced by the idea of saying I'm a psychiatrist. I'd say I'm a doctor in psychiatry. Bit of a sidebar. But I found it an odd distinction. Mm. And then I guess people get, then get stuck in the idea that we need to have like really strict terminology. Just when you, when you then plug it into one of these big systems, like a hospital running stuff, you need a, a distinction between consultants and doctors who are not consultants. Because the word doctor includes consultants. So you end up with non-hospital, non-consultant grade hospital doctors, which is just such an unwieldy term that no one's ever actually going to use it. At which point then people then default to like trainee or junior or old school terms like SHO, senior house officer. But I like, I like the idea in terms of public facing stuff, like doctors, senior doctors. Yeah, I agree. Fix it, Kevin. Yeah. Okay. Let's fix that. (laughs) (laughs) Make it public so. facing. That's the way to get. <laughs> and I, I wonder when that. As, to come back to your original question, <laughs> which I kind of ignored for a bit, I wonder whether that's partly one of the barriers is these these hierarchies and the idea that as as a junior doctor, as a trainee, I don't have the the skills, the experience, the sort of that deep knowledge to be able to contribute meaningfully mm. to managing digital systems running digital projects, um, which I think is completely untrue. But I can see why people think that. And the idea that a, a CCIO, if they're going to be a doctor in the role of chief clinical informatics officer, 
would have to be a consultant. And I can see why that ends, ends up on job descriptions and specifications. Like, oh, well, we need a, a consultant to fulfill this role. Mm. Which doesn't really make any sense. Because you wouldn't act, you wouldn't say the same in another profession. You wouldn't say, oh, well, we'll only accept people who've got 10 years of on the job training since their degree. And only if you're in that position, are you eligible to apply for the chief nursing information officer. But there's more sort of a vibe of like, oh, well, if you're, if you're still in training, you haven't quite finished your progression. Therefore, you're not ready to take on these other roles, mm. which I don't agree with, but I can see why it's a thing. I guess the, the other barrier to like building tech stuff into, into a job as, as a, as a trainee, um, is that there isn't that time. Like, oh, well, for this, for this half a day a week, I'm going to do this thing that is not looking after my patients on the ward or sorting out the people I'm looking after in the community. I'm just going to have this time to do this other stuff, which is of a huge value to the organization, but isn't of any direct value to my team. Mm. And when you're ultimately not really in control of your job plan, it's really difficult to make those decisions and build up your week in a way that is what you want it to be, which is a tricky nut to crack. Yeah, it's hard to make the case from from your side because it doesn't um well because it doesn't as you say it doesn't sort of benefit the service directly it's it's a hard, a hard case to make i i think it's hard with health tech that in other areas of tech you you can play at the job you can play at being a um well, anyway, <laughs> often tech is created by people who are doing a job. They're frustrated by it and they've got a technical ability to build the things um, up that they need. And then they then go on and sell that thing. You guys are so like busy doing your actual clinical work. It's, it, it does happen, but it's rarer. But what you don't get is, is people doing it the other way around who are kind of software engineers or techie or they come from this more engineering world and they get to play at being doctors i can't i don't really i can't play at doing your job mm. and and i can do that like i could not i play at being a barber or something but you would you you might be a barber for a short while and then have these skills and then end up building mm. something completely different you know i think like the wright brothers and the and the and the plane and the bicycle stuff, you know, they mm. were, they were in, they had the right um, setting for them to, to innovate because they lived on a cusp of different worlds. And then they were able to create something new and different out of their existing skills and abilities. And they were able to sort of let that flourish from their current skill set. And don't feel like you guys can do that. And people from the outside who might have those skills can't, can't reach in and help it's it's a weird disparity and i i can very much see the point of view of like someone who's a developer who's got phenomenal skills at making stuff and then has people whose main job is clinical come in and be like oh yeah i want to have a go at this stuff and i think it'd be perfectly reasonable for the developers to be 
quite defensive and be like, hang on a minute. You can't just jump in and like trample all over everything and make a mess of things. I wouldn't go into an operating room and start giving an anesthetic. Why should you come in and start making a mess of all my software architecture? So I, I, don't, I don't know how to play it in a way that avoids those tensions. And I wonder whether that's partly how these groups within the NHS of people who are like thought leaders and championing digital revolutions who are very much removed from the technical side sort of have a very vague understanding of what's going on at a technical level. Because mm. I guess it avoids that tension of then stepping on the toes of the people who are building stuff. Yeah, it does. But then they end up uninformed. Uh, you, mm. the, the most controversial thing I ever said on, well, on health tech, <laughs> I say a lot <laughs> of controversial things, but the most uh, on a little health tech thread was someone was asking for like a syllabus, I think, for like a digital leadership course. And I was like, you should be out of code. <laughs> like, mm. Don't expect you to be an excellent coder. And people were like, oh, you don't need to code. And but it wasn't that you want these people to be excellent coders. I think it is a skill and a profession. And there is a way of approaching things. Um, like you learn in psychiatry, it's an art, it's a holistic thing. It's, it, um, you learn about user requirements capture. You learn about um, building the things you need rather than, you know, so it's a big elephant. You have to, you have to uh, mm. prioritize and focus on the things that are going to, going to make the biggest changes it, it, there's a whole skill set to engineering and tech and it does feel you know talking to someone who comes from a software engineering background and an engineering background more generally it does feel as if um, software engineers and technicians are seen as the implementers of their ideas it's like we we know how to do this you go away we, mm. this is going to be clinically led and you go away, and once we've worked out what it's going to be and the structure and the architecture of it, then we'll get you code monkeys to come along and actually put brick on brick and build yeah. this thing. And it and it completely misunderstands what what the role of a techie is. Like the requirements capture is is a big part of things. You know, it's a massive part of a software engineer's time is actually writing the test code. Like our team, most of their time is spent up writing test code. And when you're writing test code, the thing you're doing is going, what is it this thing actually needs to do? Because mm -hmm. that's what the test code is. It says, when you press A and then B happens, then the output should be C. And it, it, it's actually done like that. It's given when then. Uh, given this situation, when I do this, then I expect this to happen. And, and, and that process is about trying to work out what the actual problem is you're trying to solve. And if... Uh, clinicians knew how to code they would they would appreciate that that process and how important it is and how much you need people who who've got years and years of experience of doing precisely that thing do not <laughs> you know do not underestimate that skill set and so it is it's you're right it's a massive frustration for me that, that a lot of the digital leadership and the um, the kind of push in digital health tech. But as I say, like directionally, they're going in the same direction. So I'm mm. never going to push back against someone who's trying to improve things. But there's, there's definitely a frustration from me. And I know others who, who are into code enough. I feel like Marcus Ball feels like this as well because he's, 
when you when you hit someone who's actually a clinician who can code as well it becomes much more stark and, it, and you can see it and then you just end up like this cassandra character that's going no you do you do actually need to know tech you, you mm-hmm. can't do this without knowing it and you know i know you coded python and things like that and uh you know you came along to to some of our our rostering stuff mm-hmm. and you yeah, i'm sort of borderline coding but working out how to pull the calendars out and you made mm-hmm. you made like a document and and a lot of that's just knowing functionally how the, the technology works about calendar subscriptions and mm-hmm. um and you were able to to help us produce something that was good for your colleagues but that came from you knowing a technical thing knowing the i calendar yeah. standard <laughs> yeah i guess the analogy with, with the like the physical building thing is like you need to have an area where the knowledge overlaps so like if someone's designing a building they'll have an understanding of the structural engineering that's necessary so that they design to it and the person building it will have overlapping that understanding of structural engineering and the person who designed it wouldn't be able to lay a nice neat wall that looks nice the, the person then building it can create a wall that looks nice but has enough understanding that overlaps so that those two people can have the same ideas right. and talk the same language and it all comes together so yeah maybe it's about having not like the ability to create an entire thing but enough knowledge of how to tap away on a keyboard and make something that works mm-hmm. so that you understand those constraints in what is possible and what we can achieve in a three-month period rather than a year mm. and thinking about thinking about what's possible and practical because I, I sort of keep changing my mind on whether we should be teaching clinicians how to code and that's quite a convincing argument that I don't think all people need a little bit yeah i mean learn to code is a very problematic phrase right (laughs) (laughs) but if you are interested in health tech and you're interested in digital leadership i feel like you should have some like base understanding of what it is you're you're asking to be even if it is just to the point of knowing what a software engineer's job actually is or what Mm. what they're doing because we have that problem it's far it's hard for me to know what a doctor actually does i don't sit in the room with them i don't i don't see how much time you have to spend i don't know like medically coding i know you have medical coders but Mm. like how much time do you have to spend just writing notes up or like Where's your time take up? What, how do you do your job? In other in other areas of life, you get to see it. You know, you get to you sort of experience what people are doing, but it's understandably private. It's it's complex, and it's and it's hidden from you from an engineer. Mm. And then and so you've got no choice really other than to have clinicians who can code and understand what you can do, so they can bring that to you. That, that's why I like hanging around with people like yourself and Marcus and other people mm. who are hacker coder clinicians. But at the same time, we should we should get you in. Because like there are random people sat observing clinical interactions all the time. Is there? I, I do actually want to do that because I my plan was to go and become um a HCA yeah, like that. locally. 
and I really want to do that. And I was like, oh, the, the paperwork. And then I get stuck in like a certain <laughs> section. And then on our last manage, like management meeting, I brought it up, which is, it just sounds like a mad project. But they're like, can you just turn up? Can you like not just turn up, but can you just observe? Because that might be more informative and have it. We could definitely set it up so that it's a, a legit thing. So people people are observing all the time. There end up being people, I guess, more so in like a ward in an acute hospital, where there are just all sorts of people milling about. I guess not so much nowadays, but like the concept of just having people around who are therefore like a valid purpose mm. is not anything new because there, there are lots of settings where it probably wouldn't be appropriate um, but there are also the things where it wouldn't really add anything in terms of what you're trying to get out of it so like i wouldn't invite you into a psychodynamic psychotherapy session because it wouldn't be appropriate but also it wouldn't actually be of any use because mm. it would just be two people talking for 50 minutes. Yeah. But like the other bits of like, how does a ward round run in psychiatry? How do we manage the ward when we're on it? How do we sort out all our notes? Would probably be quite useful. And would, I guess, if you think about it in a careful way and plan it, then it would be fine. Mm. What else are we going to do then? Perfect. <laughs> we decided that on the podcast. Amazing. I love it. I really want to have like a little GoPro camera. <laughs> that makes some good footage. It would make some good footage. <laughs> so if there's one thing that our listeners should know, what would that be? I guess it's that there's always loads of fun and interesting stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So you can always just get involved with it. There, there will always be something that is of interest to you and will let you in. And I guess the, the other part of that is that there is always another opportunity. So even when in those moments where it feels like there's just too much stuff, it's completely overwhelming. I, I simply hear it where I think, oh my God, there's just so much. I don't have enough time. I need to do all these things. And I get really panicky. But actually, it's fine because I can just not do it. Mm-hmm. And then in a month's time, there'll be other stuff. Um, which is something I need to like, like take on board a bit more for myself. <laughs> but I don't actually need to do everything right now because yeah. there will still be stuff to do in a month, in two months. So, yeah, get involved with stuff at a pace that is manageable and <laughs> remains enjoyable. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you to all our listeners who tuned in to today's episode of Sardisms. Alistair has a wealth of knowledge in his industry, having had several years of experience researching and learning. You can find out more about Sard by visiting sardjv.co.uk or send us a tweet on Twitter at sardjv and use hashtag Sardisms. Until next time, have a great week. Mm-hmm.